Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Let's talk about games for a second. Some teachers are using experience points to track performance instead of letter grades. Playing Tetris has been shown to reduce symptoms of PTSD. If you want to get engaged with movements in the gaming landscape, check out Plus 7 Intelligence, the podcast about how games impact people. You can subscribe to Plus 7 Intelligence on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Season 2, available now. Welcome to the Podglomerate. So I realized, you know, I got to figure out where this road is diverging in the woods here. And I literally had to go to the law library to research what getting published meant. I mean, you know, what an agent was and how you found an agent. And, and, and I'm embarrassed to say I didn't even know what an editor was. I mean, I, I swear I thought it was just someone you pick out. Welcome to this week's episode of Writers Who Don't Write. I am Jeff. Kyle could not make it this week, but he wanted me to let you all know that he misses you greatly. He is on the interview that you're about to hear. Uh, he and I decided to take the last month or so off. Longtime listeners of the show will know that we take off every August and sometimes a little bit more frequently. I don't know why we didn't tell you that we were going to do that this month, other than we didn't talk about it until after we did it. Uh, <laughs> so that's kind of on us. But we are back and we banked a bunch of fun interviews for you all in the interim while we were gone. Uh, we have some changes coming to the show in the coming months, which uh, you'll have to stay tuned in order to find out about. But we are really excited to get to that and let you all know kind of what we've been thinking. Uh, this week on the show, before I ramble on too long... We have Matthew Pearl, who is a fiction author who focuses in on uh, creative historical fiction. So he takes characters that you know well, like Dante, Edgar Allan Poe, Charles Dickens, uh, and really digs into uh, their lives through research and then fictionalizes the stories that you'll hear. It's really interesting. Some of the bigger authors that you are aware of have probably done something similar. Uh, I don't have any examples on hand, but you know, historical fiction is a huge genre in the world today. And whether you know about it or not, I'm sure that you've read some of these books. Uh, and who am I kidding? Our listeners are the smartest ones around, so I'm sure that you know them well. Matthew really digs into his life and his background. Uh, he went to law school. He was just this aimless law student who decided that he wanted to write a book, so he did on nights and weekends, and he didn't tell any of his friends. And then he went out and got an agent and got this thing published by Random House. Uh, not the typical story that you uh, you hear every day, but now he is a very successful writer with half a dozen books under his belt and even more nonfiction uh, essays and, and literature that you can find all over the internet. So I encourage you to check out his work. You can find it wherever books are sold. Uh, he also has a new project, which we'll tease at the end of the episode. But uh, in the meantime, you can check out MatthewPearl.com and have a glance at any of his books if you think his interesting, if you think his interview is interesting. 
So thank you so much for taking the time with us yet again. Uh, we, we really appreciate all of you all. All we ask is that you tell one friend that this show exists. One friend. If all of you do it, it will help us in, in a, a pretty huge way. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, we will chat with you again at the end of the episode. And I hope you enjoy this interview with author Matthew Pearl. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on who Matthew Pearl is? Sure. Well, I grew up in in about as different a place as can be imagined to Cambridge, uh, which is South Florida, um, <laughs> especially when I was growing up there. <laughs> um, you know, Florida, South Florida has this, maybe, maybe all of Florida has this reputation for, um, well, I don't know, being a, a strange kind of cultural wasteland or or a wasteland of a culture um and some of that's fair and some of it isn't but it's it's definitely a very i guess i'd say a very particular uh spot on the earth and uh, i came out here for college i i went to harvard and and i was kind of blown away by by a lot of aspects of living here uh, even even as a college student in which you're at least I was not really partaking in the larger community I mean going a few blocks outside of Harvard Yard felt felt like an exotic trip to me but but even then I, I was struck by kind of some simple things um, I mean strange as it sounds walking walking places something you can't do in Florida where I grew up uh, you can barely walk to the house next door. You have to get in your car. So, so just that really changed my life and and kind of my my routine, or or what I envisioned as as wanting a routine, um, in my life. Another thing was really the history. Um, you know, I think some of my friends who grew up or went to school in well in places like like you grew up in Exeter. Um, you know the history is there it's visible it's you could touch it and and i i didn't have that growing up so that that really struck me and i think it it kind of led me uh, ultimately on a path to to wanting to interact with history in in a kind of creative way and and um it was only a couple of years after college that i started writing but but when i did that's that's what i was writing i i was kind of going a few a hundred or 200 years uh in the past and and trying to find and craft stories out of that history. So how did you, when you say you started writing, are you just referring to fiction or are you also referring to the journalism that you've done as well? Uh, to fiction. Um, the nonfiction and, and more journalistic writing actually came, came quite a bit later than that. Um, it was uh, another or almost a separate journey into nonfiction, but really the first time I did what we call creative writing. It's not my favorite expression because I feel like even writing a, a, an essay or a paper for college, even writing an email, um, to me, almost any writing is by definition creative. You're creating something that wasn't there. You're creating uh, language and communication from a blank space. So, so I don't love that expression, but what, but, what we think of as creative writing, I really didn't start until 
after college. Um, in fact, I was kind of scared away when I did think about exploring creative writing uh, in college, and, and there were classes on it. Um, Harvard's, uh, I'm not sure today, Harvard wasn't particularly known for that or, or didn't go out of its way to offer that, but it did exist. Um, but you had to apply to get into the classes. So you had to, you had to write creative writing and, and possibly or probably get rejected for doing so before you could learn how to write <laughs> creative writing because it was very limited spots. So I, I was totally scared away by it. And, and it, even though it had crossed my mind to try it, it, it delayed my, my entrance into, uh, into testing out the waters for, for several years until I was in a, a pretty in, incongruous setting after college, which was law school. Um, and I certainly am not the first or last person to start writing fiction uh, while in law school. Um, but that's, that's where I started. I, I, was, I was kind of, once I was out of that setting, it, it kind of gave me a little more courage to experiment. And what was the, what was the, I guess the final straw, what was the, the motivating moment that caused you to actually start writing fiction in law school? Do you remember? Yeah, I remember pretty clearly some of it. I remember literally when I started, I, I, I set aside a, a weekend day. I didn't have the most exciting social life in law school or in college or after <laughs> law school. But in any case, um, I, I remember setting aside a, a, a weekend day and saying, you know, I'm going to try this. I'm going to test it out. But but before that, I think there were kind of a series of uh kind of implantations in my brain to point me in that direction. And, and definitely one of them was a, a professor at the law school who taught us um, legal writing, which is another kind of odd category or an, an odd title for a type of writing, um, writing briefs and memos and, and that kind of thing. And, and in the introductory speech he gave the whole class, he said, once you learn how to write like a lawyer, you will never be able to write creatively again. <laughs> yeah. And dun, I, dun, dun. right, right. And, and I had this reaction that, that probably you would have. Uh, I kind of gasped internally and looked around and, and thought I would see other horrified faces. But uh, my memory of this moment is that nobody blinked at it around me. Um, and I've asked a few people who were there and they don't even remember the professor saying this, but, um, and who knows how much the professor even kind of thought through what he was saying, but it really, it really struck me both as, um, probably unfair, uh, because, um, you know, I, I didn't get to write creatively yet. So you're, you're taking that chance away from me. And I think even then it probably struck me as untrue. I, I knew enough about writing that I knew writers had, had had wore many hats and, you know, T.S. Eliot worked in a bank and um, certainly there's, there's working lawyers who are writers. So it, it, it probably struck me as wrong, um, but it also motivated me, among a few other things, motivated me, I think, to get to that weekend in my apartment where I said, I'm, I'm going to try out this idea I have for a novel. We actually deal with this quite a bit, where the authors that we have on the show talk about like the creative writing and the, the 
general writing classes that they take in their various schools and how they don't think that it really prepared them for a life as a writer. Uh, and we've heard this from novelists, from journalists, from, um, you know, just people who wrote like one-off novels or some or one-off books. I'm just curious what you think, because like in my personal experience as a creative writing major with like an English minor, I, I would tentatively say that I learned more from the reading side of things than I did from the writing professors, although I did learn a lot from them. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm kind of on the opposite side where I've always been envious of people who had more formal training in creative writing. Um, I mean, there have even been times where I, I kind of flirt with the idea of going back for a master's in in writing. Uh, not at this point in my life, probably. I, I feel like that opportunity passed, but um, yeah, I, I think the you know, there's part of, of everyone's brain when you write that wonders if you had done something differently or been trained in some different way, if it would make the writing easier or the writing life easier. So, you know, it's, it's tough. I mean, you know, you can't live in, in one of those Star Trek episodes where Kirk and Spock meet the other Kirk and Spock who, <laughs> who took some different, you know, some different path through a different dimension and, and can compare notes. Um, and you always, at least I always wonder, um, you know, what I might've done differently, uh, even within the life of a writer, um, with, with some of those, some of those different choices. But, um, I, I think probably that comes from the fact that writing is, is almost always so, uh, so challenging on us that uh, whatever whatever place we are in as a writer, whatever background we have, we, you, you have to wonder um, if, if we had made it harder on ourselves at some point. When you imagine that other you who had gone to get a master's in creative writing, what do you imagine that it would make different for you? Probably the biggest difference would be knowing more writers. Um, I, you know, I going back to South Florida, I grew up uh, never having met a writer. Um, in fact, I only realized maybe a couple of weeks ago that I had definitely met several astronauts before I met any writer. <laughs> um, because we, Florida is, at least back then now, I guess the space program doesn't even really exist. But but the space program was kind of the thing, you know, it's kind of mm-hmm. the culture. And, and we did field trips to space camp. And, um, you know, we unfortunately watched the Challenger blow up in the sky because they would take us out to the playground to uh, to, to see the, the trails of um, uh, the space shuttles when they launched. So uh, I had definitely kind of shaken the hands of astronauts and, and, and those folks who went into space and walked on the moon felt more real to me than a writer felt. Um, and that's, I think, part of the reason it was so delayed for me to, to ever even consider that I could write. So later on, once I was a writer, I think not having had a built-in network of writers um, in some ways presented uh, another challenge and 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 ha- if I had gone to some kind of program if I had taken some kind of class 
I, I at least fantasize that I would have had a, a clique of of writers who would have become my 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 readers and my confidants. A support system. Yeah, a support system. So let's go back to when you first start writing. So t- talk to us a little bit about the journey from when you first sit down in that weekend in your apartment to when you sold your first book or your first idea. <laughs> yeah, that. So it was it was in my apartment in in New Haven. Um, and I did a test chapter. That's what I called it. And it was, <laughs> the idea was, um, and, and, I, and I do that for myself. I still do that for myself. I, I title my documents, um, not, not on purpose, but I title them, I think in ways that try to alleviate some of the pressure on myself. So, um, I'll, I'll title a document often test something something or or even i've had a i once titled a document blah 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 <laughs> um you know just i instead of titling it you know whatever some in capital letters the the title of your novel that you're imagining uh and and i did that and and the idea i was building off of was something i had done as uh, as a student uh in my senior year at, at harvard um for my thesis, I, I wrote about the first American translators of, of Dante, of uh, the Divine Comedy. And, um, and that has its own backstory, kind of how I ended up doing that. But in any case, that was kind of the last thing on my brain, and, and it plugged into that 19th century history that I had become really fascinated by while I was in college. And and so I, I had these ideas for for turning that into a story that that had kind of a a thriller or intrigue element to it um as a reader i had i had really gravitated toward a couple books like that specifically the alienist by caleb carr and um the name of the rose by umberto echo and and without having read those it, it i'm sure it would have never occurred to me to to kind of do this alchemy with the, with the historical scholarly material. But, um, but that was my first idea. And I, and I sat down and, and did that chapter and, and it, I looked at it, I read it over and it seemed, it seemed good to me. I'm, I'm pretty sure it was probably not good at all from what I remember. I don't, I don't have it anymore. Um, it was on several, many con- computers ago that, that would have crashed and, and it was before, before Dropbox or which is what I use now to, to kind of back everything up. So at least for me, when I would lose a computer, I would lose a lot of the, the material back then. Um, but it was, you know, it was, it was enough to give me confidence to work on it. And I think one of the things that was important to me, uh, maybe because of my personality or, or how I was coming to writing was that it was a secret, a secret project. I, I didn't tell, um, anybody. I didn't tell my, my friends at law school. Um, I, I didn't tell my family. Uh, it was just something I was doing on, on weekends and on the evenings and, and then soon over a summer. Um, and I just kept writing, uh, in between the other things I, I either had to do for law school or, or wanted to do. And soon I had a, a, a very thick, uh, almost complete manuscript and and 
uh, I was getting toward the end of law school by that point and, and realized that, that I had to figure something out. I mean, this is, it, it doesn't speak well of my, my planning or strategy abilities, but I, I realized that either I was going to do something with my law degree, which would have been very, very logical. Um, and, and that I was not really exploiting the various, uh, opportunities that one is supposed to do in order to set yourself up for that, uh, like doing research for a prominent professor or writing for a uh, law journal. I wasn't doing any of that because in part because I was working on my novel in part because I just wasn't that interested in those things. Um, so I realized, you know, I gotta, I gotta figure out where this, this road, uh, is diverging in the woods here. And, and I, I literally had to go to the law library to research what it, what getting published meant. I mean, I, you know, what an agent was and, and um, how you found an agent. And, and, and I'm embarrassed to say, I didn't even know what an editor was. I mean, I, I, I knew, I thought I knew I, an editor is someone who edits what you write. Um, but I swear, I thought it was just someone you pick out, um, you know, like you pick out your, your groomsman or a bridesmaid. It was just someone that you decide your mom is going to edit your book or your friend is going to edit your book. I, I had no idea it meant the person. And, and in, in fairness, um, you know, 18 years later, or whatever it's been, um, it, it, it is a deceptive word. I mean, I've had several editors and, and not all of them edit. Uh, <laughs> Um, and it, it does sometimes fall to your mom or your friend to, to edit your book. Um, I think almost a producer would be kind of a more, uh, descriptive term for what a lot of what an editor does, even editors who edit they're they're obviously, um, doing these, these larger scale, uh, business activities as well with the books. But in any case, I had to educate myself about, about all of that. And, and back then um, there were books. I, I'm not sure that this would still exist because of the internet being sort of more useful in this way, but there were books that had lists of agents and, and um, I think it was called the lit, the literary marketplace, literary guide, something like that. And, you would go to Borders, which doesn't exist anymore either, and you would pick up your literary marketplace guide and, and make a list of the agents. And the way I, I identified the agents that I sent letters to, actual letters with self-addressed stamped envelopes, because this was 1999, and that's what you had to do. Very few of them would do anything electronically. Uh, I flipped to the back of of books that seemed like they were in the same universe as mine and found where it said, I'd like to thank my wonderful agent. And, um, you know, as a reader, you don't even know often kind of where a book came from that you, that you're reading or that you've read and, uh, or when it was published. I mean, I, I sent letters to agents who were definitely dead by that point. <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in the alienist, uh, I found, my my eventual agent Suzanne, who I sent a letter to, and and um, I, I was lucky enough that another agent had um, responded shortly before that, literally maybe two days before that, saying that he was interested in seeing the manuscript, and 
then I got a call from Suzanne and she said, Oh, I, you know, I want to, I want to see this. And, and I said, well, um, you know, I just promised someone that he could have two weeks uh, to read it. And she said, pull it, pull it from him and give it to me. Um, which is kind of my first <laughs> introduction to a, uh, what an agent has to do that I wouldn't be good at all doing, which is, um, you know, kind of making, making an aggressive push for things. And, and I, I, I'm a rule follower and I'm, I'm scared of, of all authority figures. And, and I did wait the two weeks and, and, um, uh, then got it to her and, and she was excited about it. And I went to New York to meet with her and, um, we spent about four months uh, revising under her guidance, revising the manuscript. And uh, I was so anxious to get it to publishers because I was racing the clock to, to graduating law school and, and wanted to know or needed to know if I was doing this instead. And um, I kept saying, are we ready? Are we ready to send this to publishers? Are we ready? And she said, no, not yet, not yet, not yet. And then one, one week she said, okay, we're ready to send this to publishers. And I said, are you sure? Um, because I realized what a big deal that was. Once you actually send it, you can't, you can't take it back. And there was one Friday when she sent it to, uh, 17 editors at different publishing houses. And, and she said, we'll hear by Monday, we'll have an answer by Monday. And I said, wait, Suzanne, what? Because it was, it was a much bigger book in manuscript form. And I said, we're sending a 500 page manuscript. They're, they're going to read it by Monday. And, and she said, when I send a manuscript, they read it over the weekend. Uh, again, kind of the agent that you want to have that you didn't know um, uh, existed, but she was right. Uh, Monday morning, we had um, an immediate response from, from random house that made a preemptive offer, which, which you uh, kind of is what it sounds like, which is that you can, you can take it. Uh, it's the first offer before it's actually kind of officially the window to make offers. You could take it, but you you might have gotten twice as much from someone else, or you could decline it, and you might get half as much from anyone else, or get no other offers, and and have no leverage. So, um, Random House, which also published The Alienist, um, was really just the right place for the Dante Club that first novel, and and. So we took it and, and suddenly I was a writer. <laughs> I love that. How you have to you need the validation before you can define yourself as such. Yeah, well at least at least me, because I didn't you know, because I didn't have that world mm-hmm. in which a writer existed outside of that. Totally fair. Totally fair. Introducing simply light lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. I noticed that most of your books have to do with like some kind of historical fiction with like a little bit of intrigue thrown in there. And I, I'm just, I know that you have like, must have anyway, kind of like a fascination with, you know, writers of a couple hundred years back. Uh, how did that come to be? I think it's all tied up in that, in that same kind of narrative that, that 
I've been talking about, which is that distance, that remove that I felt from what it meant to be a writer. And the way I, mm-hmm. the primary way I interacted with, with writers was, was reading. And I, I think my general reading experience was reading the classics. I mean, my, the first book that got me really excited about reading, I was, I was not an early reader. I mean, I, I read, um, but I think it wasn't until Moby Dick uh, in high school that I, that I felt serious about reading or that I really wanted to spend my time reading and thinking about what I was reading. So it, it was really um, to make myself even more removed from, from writers as people the writers that I most most interacted with were dead writers um, or writers that were writing about people and places that were from a very long time ago, like Caleb Carr and and Umberto Eco, um, kind of taking that that scholar scholarly um, material and turning it into stories. Uh, so I think for me, I as I was starting to write, it, it must have made a lot of sense somewhere in my brain as I was trying to figure out what it meant to write, what it meant to be a writer, to kind of look at those writers I had read, look at those writers that I had studied from a, a scholarly point of view, at least as much as we can call kind of undergraduate scholarship scholarly. It felt like it to me at the time, at least. Um, and, and kind of try to figure out who they were as people and, and put them in situations that, that forced them to uh, kind of present themselves as people, not just as, as writers, because that's one of the disconnects you feel um, traveling from, from being a scholar of whatever level to being uh, a writer about the same people and places. Um, I might know everything there is to know about Henry Wadsworth Longfellow from writing a senior thesis about his Dante club, but I wouldn't know the first thing about what he ate for breakfast or what kind of hat he wore um, or what kind of personality he had. I might know a little bit about it, but um, since the 19 uh, kind of 60s and 70s, the English departments started to frown on incorporating and studying and exploring who writers were as people, right? With this kind of umbrella term of new criticism of close reading, we would kind of um, isolate ourselves to the words on the page and, and, um, and, and get, uh, feel like we were cheating if, if we would look into, try to look into the souls of the writers or, or try to look into, um, what the writer intended something to meaning or to mean or how it connected to their lives. Very different than the 19th century. In fact, speaking of Moby Dick, I I remember when I was in college, I did a a little presentation for my seminar class on the reviews of Moby Dick, which by the way, every writer should, should read the reviews of Moby Dick that came out when Moby Dick came out. Uh, It's something probably a lot of us forget whether you love Moby Dick or you hate it or you never read it. Um, this, this tower of American literature uh, was, it destroyed him. It destroyed Herman Melville. It, it destroyed his career. Um, it was, it was ridiculed. Uh, it was, it was not, no one was saying here, it, here it is finally the great American novel. Um, 
they were just tearing it apart. And the thing that one of the things that made me think of that is that um, when reviewers reviewed it, they would talk about Melville as the protagonist. So call me Ishmael was considered someone saying, my name's not Ishmael, that first line, my name's not Ishmael, but call me Ishmael. Um, but the reviewers would just review, would just refer to the character as Herman Melville. They would say, and then Melville, uh, you know, realizes that Captain Ahab is uh, plotting to get the white whale and, and he confers with the other sailor. So it was really interesting how opposite that is than to where we, we ended up in academic settings at least. So, so all of that I think came together to kind of point me in the direction of, of saying, okay, I'm going to take this jump. And as I do, um, I'm going to explore what it means for me to be a writer. I didn't say this obviously consciously, I'm going to explore what it means for me to be a writer by figuring out who these writers were as people. Since I, I was meeting astronauts, I wasn't meeting writers who were Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and Edgar Allan Poe and Charles Dickens who were they as people? And sometimes that was a very revelatory experience. Sometimes it was a very discouraging experience, uh, like with Charles Dickens, who is much less likable than, than you probably feel when you're reading him. Um, but all of it kind of, kind of wrapped together in, in that larger um, process for me to feel like I really can say that I'm a writer. And you might actually be one of the few people we've ever spoken to that went from fiction to journalism afterwards. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you made that transition and what prompted it? Yeah, that's that's really my current journey that I'm on and that I've been on for a couple of years is that that I, I more and more gravitate toward nonfiction writing. Um, I don't even know that I, I necessarily think of it as journalism. I think of it as as kind of narrative nonfiction for whatever the distinction is worth. Maybe maybe partially that's an institutional thing, uh, going back to what we were talking about with, with MFAs and, and writing programs. Um, I, I, I didn't go through a, a journalism um, uh, kind of program or, or even the, the kind of career track that, that makes me feel uh, comfortable or qualified to say I'm a journalist, although some of the the nonfiction, of course, ends up published in in um, settings that are are built for journalism, and and I hope that I've kind of risen to that standard. Uh, I, you know, I think part of wh- why I started in fiction was um, that it was an escape. I mean, it, it kind of felt like an escape on a couple different levels for me, um, and I think my that's how my creative brain always worked was to kind of travel away from myself. Uh, and, and fiction is part of that. Um, but as I did that and, and because, because I started in the historical space and, and that kind of self perpetuated into writing more and more historical narratives, um, I found that I really loved the research, which by the way, is not true of, of every writer. It's not true of every writer of historical fiction. And it doesn't have to be true uh, of of every writer, but you know there are plenty of writers who who can't wait to be done with the research, and and I really savored the research and 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 found sometimes that I was discovering elements of the the history, kind of what you'd call nonfiction elements, that that didn't really fit into the novels, that didn't fit into a, a fictional template. 
Um, or when you did fit it in, it, it kind of got lost. Uh, I wrote my second novel, The Poe Shadow, about the death of Edgar Allan Poe, and it's structured around characters who are trying to understand what happened in Poe's mysterious death, and it, and it really was a mystery. It still is a mystery on a couple different levels. Um, and I actually was able to find material that had never been discovered before, never been published before about Poe's death. And I, I, I wove it into my narrative, but I also realized ultimately, maybe later on, that, that it kind of got lost in there. I mean, the fact that, that some of that was published for the first time was diffused by the fact that it was, that was, it was part of a novel. So there was, there was no way for readers who, by the way, readers of novels, I don't know that would even, it would, it would make a difference to them that some fact or, or thread of facts was new uh, as it's being presented in a novel and was historically grounded um, as opposed to coming from our imagination, because that's the game of historical fiction that we're coming from both sides. Um, so I think that's where it kind of started for me is to feel that it was a bit of a shame that that was happening. And, and, and I think that's where I started writing a little bit of, um, nonfiction, not quite narrative nonfiction at that point. But for example, I wrote a long article for the London Telegraph about Poe's death. So, um, obviously in, in the, in a nonfiction format, um, although more of, more of an essay than, uh, than a narrative. But I, I think that kind of got me started on that. And then again, when I wrote about Charles Dickens for my third novel, uh, something funny happened in that one, which is that I created a character. I, part of the story follows Charles Dickens as he's on a book tour uh, or a reading tour uh, of the United States. And I thought, you know, I really want to um, capture in some dramatic fashion what a celebrity he was. I mean, he was a rock star. And so I decided to create a fictional stalker, someone who's following Dickens around and, and um, you know, obsessed with him and harassing him. And then midway through writing the novel, I found in my research, there really was a stalker who had never been kind of isolated or written about because she was, it was a woman, first of all, and she was a fairly wealthy, important woman. So it had kind of been brushed under the rug. Um, and I changed everything I was writing about the stalker. I, I, I based, um, I used a fictional, fictionalized name, but I based it on this real person. Uh, and I also realized, wow, that real material was so much better than what I was coming up with, which was kind of disappointing. Um, but I think it also set me back on that track of, of saying, well, there's this whole other branch of storytelling that I'm excited about. And, and I wrote an article about the real stalker. Um, and I think by that point, I, I was ready to pay more attention to that nonfiction side of me. I was more confident in my writing, um, less, uh, less uncomfortable presenting myself as, as able to write different things. Going back to that first professor who said, once you write like X, you won't be able to write like Y. You know, I think I'd, I'd kind of grown to the point where I, I could say, well, I can do this. I, I can do more nonfiction. And, and that coincided with the explosion of long form nonfiction as, as a, as a medium, as an art form um, there, you know, it's something that was pretty limited by print publications still is very limited by space constraints. 
So that sweet spot for narrative nonfiction, in my mind, for long form, between, say, 3,000 words and uh, 12,000 words, um, yeah, there's, there's almost no space in, in print for that today, uh, still. So as the internet became, and, and our tablets and our devices became more reader-friendly, there suddenly was this space for that, and, and that's, I think, how I started to realize I wanted to do it. That's really interesting. I think it speaks of your law school background that one of the things that drove you to writing, uh, to journalism in particular, was a love of research. <laughs> I think that's uh, that explains a lot about your historical fiction tendencies as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I've known writers who have dabbled in historical fiction. I just met one a few months ago, or maybe it was last year, um, who wrote um, uh, in in historical uh, context and said he's never doing it again because the research drove him crazy. Um, and I've known other writers who kind of go in and out of it because the research is so exhausting. Uh, so yeah, for, for whatever reason, I, I think that's just always how my brain worked when I was interested in something I, I would kind of try to surround it by by going into the history of it. Well, so it seems like the fact that there was actually novel information in your Poe novel seems like a failure of the marketing department and less than the failure of like the readers to pick up on it. Because that's definitely something that would intrigue me to know that you were actually basing some of your historical fiction on things that actually happened and had never been discussed before. Yeah, you know, I, I had that same feeling, um, and I pushed it and pushed it on marketing and publicity. I I tried to scream from the rooftops, like, isn't this interesting that you're reading a novel and you're encountering historical information that's never been in print before? Um, but there, there's just, I, I don't think that's what, I, I mean, I, I, I think my readers responded perfectly well to the novel, and, 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 and I still... I think just yesterday got a an email from someone in the middle of reading that novel um, and enjoying it. But I, I just I don't think that that matters to most people um, when they're reading a novel. And um, and it, it definitely deflated me a little bit because I was so excited that uh, I was finding those nuggets, which I didn't think I would find because Poe's death has been written about. Maybe nothing's been written about as much as the JFK assassination. But I mean, it's up there for for. <laughs> For literary history, at least. I mean, it's not, it's um, just such a you know, striking thing to find out about a novel. Yeah, I, I'm glad you think so. I, I you know, there there wasn't, um, even the publicity we got and, and sort of the radio interviews and things like that that I got to do for that book, um, no, nobody really cared. I find that... I don't know. I feel like that's one thing that if more people knew about, I think it would be both surprising and intriguing and lead to more readers. But what do I know? I'm not a publisher, you know? Well, maybe as people listen to this, maybe we'll, we'll get some more recruits that agree with us. We can hope. Um, so Matthew, we're approaching fast at the time in the show where we normally pivot to talk a little bit about one story you struggled to tell. And I know beforehand you'd send us some options of ideas that you thought might work. Um, and I wanted to let you actually choose. So if you, if you had to tell, sure. if you had to pick one of those stories, which one would you talk about? Sure. Well, you know, as I say, I think fiction was, was kind of an escape hatch for me. 
And the last thing I'd ever have wanted to do would, would be to write about myself, for example, another way that fiction and historical fiction especially prevented that. Um, and, I, and I think I've grown out of that a bit. I, I have three children and, and in one of my children, I, I just, it's a mirror image of, of how I was in that regard. Um, and if someone takes out a camera, he runs away and I feel really bad because it's totally from me. <laughs> um, and he does not want to draw attention to himself. He'll never raise his hand. It took me until law school to raise my hand in a class, I think. Wow. Um, you know, I, so that's, that's always been something I struggled with, which was to say, well, you know, I have a story I want to tell her. I want to tell you about something about myself. And, um, and I think that's probably in thinking about what I haven't written about or what I haven't figured out how to write about, it'll probably always come back to that for me. And and for me, a a huge part of my life and, and of that same childhood that I'm talking about when I kind of became that person, that person and personality that didn't want attention um, comes from my family. And I think a lot of, a lot of us, that's the hardest thing to write about. Look, for some of us, that's maybe the first thing you write about and the thing you want to write about. But for me, I still haven't quite cracked how to get into that. And, and maybe my road through writing nonfiction uh, will lead me there. It's led me there a little bit. And, and I specifically, I think the, the, the story that I have not yet told would be kind of about my, my relationship with my brother and about my brother himself, uh, who's a couple years older than me and, and has um, a medical condition that's, that's kind of a, form of muscular dystrophy or sometimes grouped under muscular dystrophy called spinal muscular atrophy or SMA and has been in a wheelchair since I could remember. He was about, um, uh, I think five years old when he ended up in a wheelchair permanently, but it's, it's sort of as far as my memory could go back. Um, I don't remember him out of the wheelchair and, um, and then over the years it's a degenerative disease. So it, it got worse at different stages and, and he's, lives on a ventilator and with round the clock nursing. And, and I think he would have been some form of, uh, of a creative, um, of, of writing or, or filmmaking or, or something like that. And so part of my right, my responsibility as a writer has always felt to kind of carry that forward for him, with him, um, you know, try to share my, um, experiences with him whenever I can. Uh, and my first novel that we talked about where it came from, that was dedicated to two people. It was dedicated to my, my professor who taught me Dante in college and, and to Ian, my brother. Um, and so just this, le- just this year I, is the first time I've ever written about Ian in any real way for an article that I did, um, strangely enough, about, about a restaurant in South Florida that was the headquarters for the mafia for many years, but it was a restaurant that I, as I was researching my article, uh, I discovered that my brother Ian used to go there and had a relationship um, with the owner of the restaurant who was kind of the center of my, my article. So it was, it was sort of this amazing confluence of, um, of my life and my writing and of my family. So it was the first time that I, that I found a way to write about Ian and write about my family. And it's, it's something I still, want to develop more. Um, but part of that is, is, is how to write it, is how to execute it. And part of it, as it often goes back to, is kind of who I am as a person and, and what, what I have to battle through to write um, in a different way. And have you attempted to write about it in the past? 
I have, yeah. Uh, there, there's a specific summer that I want to write about, a, a summer in which Ian and I kind of spent the summer together. It was kind of a, a pivot point as I was getting ready um, to leave, to go to college. Um, and that we, we kind of hunkered down together after he had a very a major medical setback and, and um, kind of the things we talked about and dreamed about and, and uh, changes in routine and in, in, a, in his approach to, to his future and his life as his, his kind of medical options were restricting him. Um, so I, I have, I mean, I've, it's never gone anywhere, but um, it's, it's something I've started and stopped and started and stopped multiple times. Yeah. I think one of the, I mean, one of the, the parts of these stories that I always find so interesting is the, the different stopping points for people. For some people, it's enough just to do the research about it and consider it. Uh, but when they actually start to, or I guess sit down at the computer to start typing it out, it's just, nothing happens. And that moment is always different for people. And I was wondering what that moment looked like for you. Yeah. You know, I am not someone who, who has writer's block at all ever. Um, I, I can always feel like I'm writing on almost every project except this one. I, I mean, I wrote for it. And so it's not that kind of feeling where you stare at the blank screen. Um, you know, I started crafting it, but, um, just each time the voice doesn't seem right. And part of that might be, again, that inner resistance that I have to writing about myself. So even in this article that I wrote about the mafia uh, influenced restaurant and my brother, it's still not a first person um, point of view or voice. Um, So part of it might be that inner resistance. Part of it might be simply experience uh, or training going back to our early, earliest part of this conversation. I sometimes wonder, Oh, should I take a memoir writing class? and maybe that will kind of jolt me or give me some some skills that I, uh, a toolbox that I don't usually draw from for my writing. So it's it's always, you know, that that point at which you're trying to figure out how to, uh, how to surround a story, even once you feel like you know what the story is. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today to tell us a little bit about your career and yourself. This was the latest episode of Writers Who Don't Write. Thank you so much, Matthew Pearl, for being a guest on the show. We could not have done it without you, quite literally. Listeners can check out his website at matthewpearl.com. Get a copy of his latest book, The Dante Chamber, or any of his books. I really enjoyed The Last Buccaneer and The Technologists. As you just heard in the interview, he is a really interesting guy. He has a a pretty wild life story of how he became a writer. Uh, Support the writers on this show by picking up a copy of their books. I mean, hey, you like him enough to listen to him talk for an hour, so you might as well enjoy his words as well. Uh, So we also want to give attention to a new adventure of his, uh, a website called Truly Adventurous. That's trulyadventure.us. It is a new uh, media company slash nonfiction web publisher uh, with true stories so nuts we couldn't be making them up. Uh, basically, it is a lot of stories that don't necessarily fit the mold of, of traditional publishing outlets because they don't have a, a timely hook or uh, you know just something that other publishers may have passed over for one reason or another. 
uh, he really wants to dig into it and, and provide an outlet for writers to get published. I know a lot of the listeners to the show would probably be really interested in pitching something. So head over to the website, check it out. It's launching soon. Uh, so that's a lot of homework. Read his books. Check out trulyadventure.us. Uh, we want to thank Ryan Dan for the music at the top and the bottom of the hour. He is Holland Patent Public Library. That is Holland Patent Public Library. You give that a Google and you'll find a couple of his albums, which are all fantastic. Uh, the music that you heard in the middle of the show is from Ben Sound, who you can find at bensound.com. And Writers Don't Write is a production of the Podglomerate Network. Uh, you all have heard me discuss it before. By the time you're listening to this episode, we may have our new website up. That is thepodglomerate.com. You can see a list of the shows we have. There's 16 or 17 up there in various states. Uh, you know, Some of them we produce ourselves, some of them we distribute, some of them we help with ad sales. Uh, we actually have a new show launching on September 18th I wanted to tell you all about called The History of Stand-Up. It's a show that we're making with comedian Wayne Fetterman, who is an actor, writer, producer. Uh, you may not have heard of Wayne himself, but he has like 82 IMDb acting credits. He produced the uh, Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling on HBO with Judd Apatow. Uh, he has acted in movies like Step Brothers. He wrote Jimmy Fallon's opening monologue for a while. Super interesting dude. And he also teaches the history of stand-up at USC. So what we did is we took his, basically his syllabus, and we have turned this into a six-episode mini-season where he is going through the entire history of stand-up. Uh, we have amazing guests like Judd Apatow, Jimmy Pardo, Julie Sebaugh. Uh, we are covering stand-up from vaudeville to Netflix, and there's a ton of stuff in here that I didn't know about. I'm not like the biggest comedy nerd, but I, I know a little bit. Uh, it was really fascinating. I can't wait to release it. That's September 18th. You can subscribe today wherever you listen to podcasts. That is the history of stand-up. Give it a listen. Let us know what you think. Uh, you can find Writers You Don't Write on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at www.podcast or on Instagram at www.pod. You can email us at www.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, we really thank you all for sticking with us over these years. It's been a, a real treat to be able to you know, head into your earbuds every, every couple weeks. So thank you again so much, and we hope to hear from you all soon. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.